guys. If you brought your Bible today, we're going to be back in Acts chapter 17. As you know, if you've been with us, we're kind of walking through a series on the, the life of the Apostle Paul. And, and we're in the second missionary journey that he took. And uh, last week when we gathered together, we saw that Paul and Silas and Timothy were in a place called Berea. And uh, it was a place where, as they presented the gospel, these guys checked Paul out. They, they did their fact checks. They, uh, they were online to see if what Paul was saying was, was accurate and true or if it was false and misleading. And, and it said they took everything Paul said back to Scripture to see if it was true. And, and we talked about the need for you and I to do that and, and the, the way that the gospel says that, that we're, we're honorable, we're noble when we do that, that we don't just take somebody's word for it, but we check it out and make sure that it's true. I think that's even more important in a world where we live where truth doesn't seem to matter anymore. If you just say the lie long enough, people will believe it. And, uh, and at first when they hear a lie, they go, well, that's not true. And then they hear it the second time and the third time and the fourth time. And all of a sudden they go, well, if he keeps saying it, then maybe there's something to it. We talked about the fact that scripture is our measuring stick, that we take everything back to the word of God. And as we look at the Word of God, we say, is this true? Is this accurate? Is this noble? Is this something that I need to imitate or something that I need to, to steer away from? And so we saw Paul speaking to the Bereans. He, he applauded them for the fact that they were taking things back to Scripture. And I, I would say this to y'all. I think we said it last week, but let me just say it again. If you have a, a leader who is offended when you ask questions, who is offended when you question the, the veracity of their statements, the truth of what they say. If you have a leader that's going to, to, to try to demonize you for seeing something different than they see, then that's not a biblical standard. That's not a biblical uh, leader. Uh, we should want people to go back to Scripture. We should want people to compare what we say with the Word of God and to see if it's true. And so uh, he did that with the Bereans. Uh, we learned that he had been in Thessalonica before he went down to Berea. And... The Thessalonians, the Jews that ran him out of Thessalonica, uh, heard that he was having success in, in Berea, and they went down there to run him off from Berea too. So they made that 50-mile journey across to Berea, and they stirred up trouble. They they showed up and they stirred up, and uh, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't long before Paul is escorted out of Berea. So I want to kind of show you where he where he was. If we get that map, um, we said that he crossed over. He was here in Berea. Okay, he had been in, in Thessalonica. He crossed over to Berea. The Thessalonians came over and stirred up trouble in Berea. And then the Bereans, it said they took him to the sea and they sent him all the way down to Athens. So different scholars have different opinions whether he just followed the road by the sea. There's a road that runs down alongside the sea. And if he did his journey this way and just came by land or if he actually got in a ship and made his, his sail. But he comes all the way down here to Athens. That's a good long journey that he's made past the, uh, through the Aegean Sea and down to Athens. And this is where we're going to pick up today is in this area of Athens. And so uh, as he's made that journey, he left uh, Silas and Timothy back in Berea. So they stayed there and he traveled just with some of the Bereans. It said they escorted him down to Athens. And so these, these Bereans uh, fell in love with Paul. They, they respected him and, uh, and they wanted to travel with him. So several of them made the trip down to Athens, but, but Timothy and Silas stayed behind. Uh, maybe they weren't quite as out front. They weren't quite maybe as, as much of a target uh, as, as Paul was. And so they stay behind probably to do some more discipleship and to help the church to, to be strengthened because Paul just spent a short time there. So they stay behind and Paul travels with these guys down to, uh, 
to Athens. And so let's pick up in chapter 17, verse 15, and we'll kind of see uh, kind of what happens here in verse 15. It says, those who conducted Paul, in other words, they escorted Paul, they brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So they, they take Paul down to Athens, and uh, they escort him all the way down to Athens, and then Paul says, now listen, you guys go back, and you tell you tell Timothy and Silas as soon as they can break free that they need to come join me here in Athens. And so uh, he sends them back with a message for, for Timothy and Silas uh, to come and to, to join him. Now, when we look at this story about Athens, we're going to see a city that's filled with idols, a city that's just, it's as pagan really as it can be. And we might we look at this and at first glance think, man, Athens is a terrible place to preach the gospel. Terrible place for Paul to head. Everywhere Paul's gone, he's run into opposition. And now he's going into a city that, that doesn't even pretend to be godly, doesn't even pretend to, to, to worship the, the one true God. These guys are, 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 are kind of pagan at their core, and there's going to be heavy opposition. And, and so when we read how Luke describes this in, in verses 16 to 21, we see that, that this is a place that's going to be tough for Paul. But t- Paul never backed down from a challenge. Look what he, what he encounters when he gets to Athens. Chapter 17, verse 16. It says, now when Paul was waiting for them, so he's waiting on, on Timothy and Silas to come and to join him. So he's traveled there by himself. He sent the crew back that came with him, and now he's there alone. So while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue. Remember, Paul always starts in the synagogue if there's one there. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. And in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So kind of get a picture here. On, on the weekends, on, on the Sabbath, he's, he's in the synagogue. And he's talking to the Jews and to these, um, these devout people, probably the Gentile converts that are there in the synagogue. But then during the week, he is in the marketplace each day. And he's talking to whoever happened to show up there. That would be the, the, the commoners. It would be the people that are doing the, the, the shopping and the... And the um, uh, the working could be servants. It could be all different kinds of people in the marketplace. But whoever he ran into that was willing to listen, he shares the gospel with them. And then he says, some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him, they brought him to the Aragopas. And they said, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians, this is interesting, all the Athenians, the residents of Athens, and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. These guys love to chew on the newest thing. Uh, they would have loved Facebook. You know, these guys would have loved social media because it says they, they did nothing with their time except for just exchange ideas. They, they, they talked and they listened and they just, what's the newest, latest fad? What's the, the latest belief? What's the, evidently in their town, what's, the, what's the, the newest God? Because they have these idols all over town to every kind of God that's imaginable. And, and, and so they, they listen and, and they don't want to miss anything. They, you know, these guys are the, the king of the add-on religion. Uh, in, in this part of the world, it wouldn't be that you had one God that you worshipped exclusively, but you would have a God for every different thing that you wanted or needed. 
You had sun gods and moon gods. You had sex gods. You had wealth gods. You had every kind of a god you can imagine to give you whatever it was that you wanted. And so these guys were always looking and listening for the next available god. And when we find another god or we hear about another god, then we'll build another idol to that god. And we will worship all these different gods. And hopefully by, by hitting them all, we'll get what we want. And so that's the way that they lived. And so they spent all their time listening to and, and, and talking about and discussing. And so here comes Paul with this new God, this, this new teaching, this strange thing, this foreign divinity that, that, he, that he, um, he brings to them. And, uh, and so he's here in this city. Verse 16 says, a city full of idols. And, and there's a major problem with going into a place that's filled with idols. And that is this, that people love their idols. I mean, let's be real. We like our idols, okay? We, we don't have idols that are set with stone and wood that we bow down and worship to, but we have things in our lives that, that we idolize, things in our lives that, that we really like and that we want to hold on to. And the minute that somebody starts to take our idol away, things get bloody. Go into a church that, that is long established and has all these traditions and all these rituals and all these things that... That, that, that just make that church what it is, and you start to change some of that, it gets bloody. It, it, it gets serious. People like their idols, and they don't let go of them very easily. It, it's no different for us today. It's no different in churches today. It's no, no different for us in our personal lives. We, we set up things in our world that, that bring us pleasure, things that, that we think will satisfy us, things that we think will help us, and we get into that stuff and then when somebody tries to point it out or to take it out of our lives we we don't let go very easily something else about idols is this that idols don't put themselves on display an idol is dead it, it can't do and, and so it can't promote itself it can't even establish itself an idol in that day couldn't have carved itself these these idols don't don't, don't put themselves on display. People put them on display. And then people like to keep them on display. Some people will make idols out of their spiritual leaders. You guys don't have that problem, okay? But, but some places we, we worship our pastors. We, we worship our leaders. We, we look to them and say, well, my pastor is so-and-so, and he says... And we put our pastors up on these pedestals like, like these guys would have put their, their idols on the pedestal. And we end up worshiping the leader more than we do the God that the leader is supposed to be preaching. And so we, we've got to be careful because people, these idols can't put themselves up there. Somebody else has to do it. And so now Paul is in this city that's filled with idols. He's surrounded by the people that put those idols in place and that help to keep those idols alive and, and well. And so when you first look at the city of Athens and you think, man, here goes Paul, he is about to, he's going to get slapped silly. I mean, this, this guy's going to be in, he's going to be in the, in the, the den of lions here in, in Athens. Um, and then it says Paul saw this city and, and his spirit was provoked. Now, when you and I think about being provoked, we usually, the image and conjure up this attitude of, of, of anger. Paul was just angry that they had all these idols. But that's not necessarily what the word provoke means. The, the word provoke just means to be stirred to action, 
Paul couldn't sit still. He couldn't wait. He couldn't. He, he's waiting on Timothy and Silas to come and be his buddies, and, and, and they'll have each other's back, and they'll work together as a team, and they'll try to reach this city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the more Paul looks around, the more he sees, it says he's, he's provoked. He's stirred to action. He, he can't sit still. He can't wait for those guys to get there. Something needed to be done, and it needed to be done right now. And so his location has changed once again, but his gospel message has not. His mission has not. And so verse 17 says that he begins to reason and debate with the Jews in the synagogue and with the devout people that are there. So either with these Jews and these, these Jewish converts, he begins to, to, to reason. He begins to debate with them. He begins to, uh, to discuss their, their view and, and his view and how those things could line up or how those things would clash. And so he begins to do that. He also shares during the week in the marketplace. So everywhere he's going, he's trying to make the most of of his opportunity. He doesn't, Paul never knew how long he was going to be in a place. He didn't know from week to week if he was still going to be there or if he was still going to be alive. And so he took advantage of every opportunity they had to be able to share the gospel. I want you to notice the wide range of people, the audience that he's trying to, to address as he's in this city. It's, it's Jews who are committed to the, the, the Jewish faith, who are committed to the Old Testament that, that you and I have today and, and fulfilling that Mosaic law. They are, they are Jews that are devout and, and, and are hanging on to that. Even in a whole other continent now, they, are, they brought their faith with them. Devout people who the Jews have swayed to come and to join Judaism. And so these are Gentiles who probably would have been circumcised, who would have agreed to keep the Mosaic law. And now they become converts. And so they are meeting in the synagogue with these Jews. Uh, he's goes from these real devout people, these Jews that are committed to their faith, to these people in the marketplace who probably helped set up some of those idols and some of those things that they were worshiping, just common people in the marketplace, probably uh, servants all the way up through uh, maybe homeowners and landowners that were there. And then he meets uh, two groups of philosophers that he speaks to, uh, the Epicureans, uh, and, and both of these, both of these um, philosophers, these groups of, of philosophers, are both committed to, to happiness and to pleasure. That's, that's what their, their, um, their ultimate goal for both of these are. But they kind of approach it a little bit different. The, the Epicureans uh, were devoted to maximum pleasure. Uh, their, their enjoyment and, and their pleasure in life came from fine foods and fine wines and, and having the best of everything that, that, that Athens could offer them. They were the guys that were, were the elite group. They were up there and... and, and they just thought that the better the food and the better the wine and the better the entertainment, the better the stuff, the more pleasure that that brought to your life. And so having more and more stuff and having the, the best of all of that stuff was very, very important uh, for them. Uh, they believe that you, um, that you achieve the freedom from bodily pain and through the drudgery of life through pleasure. And so probably their motive and their motto may have been something like, if it feels good, do it. If it brings you pleasure, then, then pursue that. And that was their goal. That was the Epicureans that, that are mentioned here in chapter 17. He also talks about the Stoics. You ever heard of somebody describe somebody else as being very Stoic? That stiff upper lip, you know, just, just don't show the emotion, don't show all this, you know. You just, you just maintain that. When we call somebody Stoic, they, you, you can't read them. They're just, they're just this face, you know. Well, the Stoics were also seeking after pleasure. But they thought that the way you achieve pleasure was just by embracing your fate. Whatever it is that the gods have in store for you, just embrace that with a stiff upper lip, and this is just my lot in life, 
and I, I'm just going to make the best of what I've got. That was their way of, of kind of approaching it. They, uh, they, they thought if you were one with nature, if you were accepting your fate, if you would just pretend that it didn't hurt and just say, you know what, I'm tougher than this. and I'm just going to pick myself up and I'm just going to move forward. That was their approach. So Paul's debating with these two different groups of, of philosophers, both of them seeking after pleasure and seeking after happiness. They're kind of coming at it from, from different angles. And then he mentions this group called the uh, Aragapas, which uh, the word Aragapas has two different meanings. It, it means literally large white rock. That's the first meaning. Right outside the city of Athens was this humongous white rock. It's still there. There's pictures of it you can find on, on the internet. But it's just this big old rock. It survived wars and bombings and all kinds of stuff. But it was this huge flat white rock that this group called the Aragapas would meet on. So the rock was called the Aragapas and the, the council that met on it was called the Aragapas. Here we're talking about uh, not just the location or the rock, but we're talking about the group of, of people that, that met on this. And so it was a council that would meet on the rock. And it was a kind of a, a uh, aristocratic council. It was real high-class individuals. Most of them were born into wealth and born into nobility. Uh, history says that most of the people that served on this, this Aragapas council uh, were like advisors to the king. They were people that the king would seek out, these wise men that, that seemed to be born into wealthy families, had a very high education and were well thought of. And when you had a decision to make or you had a question about life, these are the guys that you would go to. So these would be kind of the, the, maybe not the rulers politically, but certainly the guys that you would look up to in society and say, well, man, if we need somebody to figure things out, these are the wise men of our day. And they were the council. So here you've got peasants in the marketplace all the way up to these wise men that serve as the king's counselors. And Paul is trying to reach all of them. He's, he's meeting with them maybe at different times, different places, but he's, he's taking the gospel to everyone, which is what we're called to do. The gospel is not just for poor people. It's not just for rich people, but it's for all people. And, and Paul sees that, and he begins to, to engage all of these different people. And so we have to ask the question, what is it that you share with such a, a diverse group of people? What do you tell the commoner and the wise man? What do you tell the, 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 the religious Jews and the non-religious pagans? What, what is it that we tell this group that, 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 that we can share with them that will make a difference for such a wide range of audience? Verse 18 tells us what Paul shared with them. It says that he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Didn't matter who they were. They needed to know about Jesus, and they needed to know that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. And so Paul's going to spend his time talking about Jesus and talking about the resurrection. It didn't matter who you were. You needed to know that Jesus Christ came, why he came, how he came, what he accomplished, and how God resurrected him uh, on that third day. So then we ask the question, well, how do these guys receive Paul's message? Well, it's kind of interesting when you look at the, at the different terms that they use to describe Paul. And in verse 18, they call him a babbler. Listen to this babbler. He just keeps going on and on and on about this guy named Jesus. Paul goes, yeah, that's all I know. Well, what did Paul say to the other churches? When I came to you, I, I came and I pretended to know nothing but Jesus and crucified him resurrected. That's, that's my message. Paul, Paul didn't get fancy. Paul's not going to go in here and say, let me tell you six ways to get rich. Let me tell you six ways to build a better marriage. Let me, he says, let me tell you about Jesus, because when you meet Jesus, everything's going to change. If you can meet Jesus, everything in your life is going to, to, to revolve around that. And so it says they called him a babbler, and, let they, and yet they conversed with him. They, 
ah, he's, he's just going on and on and on, but we want to hear some more. Others thought that he was a preacher of foreign divinities, it says in verse 18. You're preaching some foreign God that we've never heard about, this foreign divinity we've never heard about. Well, if you're a town that wants to hear the latest, then, then you're going to listen. Let me, let me, maybe we missed a God. Let me, let me listen. They called Paul's teachings new teachings. It was something that they hadn't heard before. They called his teachings strange teachings, verse 20. Yet it says they wanted to know more and more about what Paul was talking about. So their opinions of Paul and their opinions of Paul's teachings did not deter Paul from continuing because he knew that they needed to hear the gospel of grace. And so Paul just keeps plugging along. How many times for you and I have we been sincere and tried to share the gospel and the first time somebody mocks us, it's the first time somebody says, man, what you're talking about is, is just, it's crazy. To think that God would come to earth and that God would die in my place for my... That's just nonsense. And we get offended and we go, well, oh, okay. And we just clam up, shut up, and leave. Not, not Paul. He expects to have people go, wait a minute, this is strange. This is unheard of. This is unbelievable. And Paul would say, absolutely. That's who my God is. He is a God that does the unbelievable. He is the God that does what's unheard of. He, all of your gods want you to die for them, and, and, and my God died for me. This is, this is unheard of. This is unbelievable. And so Paul expected that, and he never let it slow him down. And, and I want to think it's important here at this beginning that we, we realize that when you approach a city filled with idols... And guys, I think that's a good description of where we live today. We, we're not a third world country that has totem poles and, and things in our yards that we bow down and worship to. We don't have idols on the mantle. We don't have those kind of things. But, but we in America have a lot of idols. A lot of idols. Things that we worship. Things that capture our time and our attention and that are of utmost importance to us. Things that, that if they disappeared tomorrow, we would be shattered and we would be heartbroken. We have a lot of idols, and, 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 and we live in a world filled with idols. And, and so you've got to look at this and say there's two different ways to, to view a city filled with idols. There, there's one view that says, well, when you enter into a city that's, that's filled with idols and idolaters, you need to view those people as idolaters who have turned from the true God to worship worthless idols. These are wicked people. They are warped in their minds. They aren't thinking clear. They are misled. They are, they are reprobate. They are, they are hard-hearted. They, they just turn from the true God, and they've turned to these false things that, that can't satisfy them. And, and, and to see them as wicked and worthless and deserving of God's judgment and God's wrath. It's easy to go into those worlds and to look at that and say, I am offended by you. I am offended by your lifestyle. I'm offended by your language. I'm offended by the way you behave. I'm offended by the, the, the things that you eat or the things that you drink. I am offended. And there's a lot of offended Christians out there today. There's a lot of people who just go from thing to thing to thing to thing, wearing their feelings on their sleeves and going, well, I'm just offended. I don't approve of your lifestyle. I don't approve of what you do. I don't approve of where you go. I don't approve of who you hang out with. So you and I have nothing in common. So you just go do your thing and I'm going to go do my thing. That's one way to view a city filled with idols. 
But there's another way to view a city filled with idols. It's to see that city and to see those people as, as people who have a searching heart. People who, who with searching hearts are, are lacking the gospel. And because they lack the gospel, they've turned to any and everything that can promise them what the emptiness of their heart is longing for. Listen, people don't look to worthless idols just because they want to be stupid. They look to worthless idols because they've not been shown anything any better. Two different ways to look at that world. Well, they've turned from God and they're wicked and they're just, their minds have, you know, we get, quote, Romans 1 to them, you know, it's just it's wickedness. And be offended by it. Or to look at it and say, you know why they do this? Because they haven't been shown anything any better. They, they don't have the gospel. They need the gospel. They need to understand the gospel. You can look at that type of a city. And you can say, you know what? These people are lost. But the fact that they've got idols means that they're searching. That they're lost and they need the gospel truth to be able to combat Satan's lies. They're lost and they're going to perish because they still haven't heard the truth of the gospel. So you can look at that city and say it's an object of offense or it's an opportunity for the gospel. Which of these two do you think Paul embraced? I think he saw it as an opportunity for the gospel. In fact, when Paul, when Paul begins to, to talk to them, he, he's going to confirm that that he sees in them this, this longing and this desire to, to know something more. And so let me ask you this morning, how do you see your world? How do you view our city? Do you see the people that are involved in immorality as people who are just looking for something? When we look at businesses that that exist for pagan stuff. Do we see that as somebody just searching? Or do we just want to, you know, put our fingers up and do the cross and tell them to stay far away? We live in a city that's bought the lie because they still don't know the truth. They haven't experienced the truth. Do we speak words of condemnation or words of compassion? Because our attitude will play a huge part in, in their willingness to listen to the gospel, and in their willingness to, to hear more and to want to know more about what it is that we have believed in and what's made a difference in, in our world. Notice Paul's response to this city full of idols. Verse 22, look what he says. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Aragopas, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you very religious. Now, was he saying they were Christian? No. But he starts off, he says, look, it doesn't take long when you, when you walk the streets of the city to realize this is a very religious place. Do you know that we live in the midst of a very religious people? Not just in Vinton, but, but in America. People are very religious. 
They just haven't connected necessarily with God. They're, 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 they're looking in Scientology. They're looking in, 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 in all these other areas, guys, where they can go, well, I'm going to dabble with this, and I'm going to have my palm read, and I'm going to read in the newspaper and see what, what's going to happen to me today. They're, they're religious, and they're seeking some answers. They're seeking some solutions. They're just not looking in the right place. And, and we live in a very religious time. Now, not a very Christian time, but a very religious time where, where people are searching and they're looking and, and, and we've just missed what they're doing. We're misinterpreting necessarily what they're all about and what they're searching for. But we live in a, in a religious time. And he says, I see that in every way you guys are very religious. Now, religious, it means that they're, they're faithfully devoted to following a, a god. Faithfully devoted to, to following some type of a deity. Now, they had many little gods that they were faithfully devoted to to following and trying to please and trying to appease. But he says, I see that you're very religious. You're searching. Now, I know there are theologies that say a person before they're saved can't search. I don't believe that. Here, these guys are, are searching. They're, they're not looking in the right place, but they're trying to fill a void in their lives. They just don't know where to look yet. Nobody's shared the gospel with them yet. In, in verse 23, he says, I even saw this altar to the unknown God. He says, he says in verse 23, For as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. So again, it's kind of it's funny uh, when you think about it. But, but here's all these different altars, and it's an altar to this God, an altar to that God, an altar to this one, and oh yeah, that guy brought in another God last week, and there's his altar. And by the way, we're going to have an altar to this unknown God because we may have missed one that we just don't know about yet. And, 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 and we need the help from all the gods if we're going to be a great city and a great people. So they make this altar to a, literally an unknown God, just in case we've missed one. Paul says, you guys are so religious. That, that you've covered all your bases. You've got it all done. You've, you've even got an altar to an unknown God because you don't want to miss anything. You've covered all of your bases. That's an admirable effort, Paul would say. You've got it all covered. But Paul says, I, I know you say this God's unknown. But guess what? I, I know him. I know your unknown God. Would you mind if I tell you about it? Do you see and sense the respect that Paul has for these people? He's not coming and saying, you guys are ignorant and you're stupid and you're worshiping rocks and sticks and stones and you just, you just missed it. You've just missed it. Let me tell you about the real God. Paul doesn't do that. He comes in and he says, guys, listen, I, I sense that you're searching for something. That's, that's what all this, this, this idol stuff's about. Something's missing, and you're searching, and you're religiously searching. And you've got this God that you say you don't know, but you just want to worship him anyway just in case. Well, let me tell you about the unknown God. Now, remember how they've already described who Paul's preaching about, this foreign divinity, these, these new gods, these, these things that we haven't heard before? Can, can I tell you about that God right there that you've got this altar to? Can I, can I tell you about him? And then in verses 24 to 31, he begins to unpack the gospel and making Jesus known to them. He shows them how different his God is to all their little gods. 
He, he shows them the, the distinction between the gods that they worship, little g, and the God that he worships, capital G. Let me show you some of the differences. This God, he says, who is unknown to you. Verse 24, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Listen, 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that he should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Let's look at what Paul's saying. He's comparing his God to their God. The first thing he says is, 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 is you made your gods. You fashioned them and formed them by your hands. My God made the world and everything in it. In fact, God made the stone that you used to make your God. God grew the stick that you've carved into that idol. He's done that. The, my God created all the stuff that you used to create your God. He, he says that he is Lord and ruler of, of, of heaven and earth. He's over it all. In fact, my God, Paul says, this, this unknown God... He doesn't live in temples made by men. They would create their idols and then build a temple around it. And they would go to that temple to worship that God. He says, my, my God doesn't live in a temple that's made by man. In fact, my God made the men who made those temples. He's too big for a temple to confine him, to contain him. Verse 25, he says, and he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. My God doesn't need anything to exist. He doesn't need anything to, to be God. Think about this. Think, you've got to think about the difference between the real God and, 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 and idols. It, it's a huge difference that Paul is, is making a distinction between here. The big difference is that idols require men in order to be idols. If I had, let's say that this, this stand right here is going to be my idol, okay? The minute that we stop worshiping that stand, it becomes just a stand or a stick or a stone. Idols require men to remain idols. And the minute that men turn away from those things, the minute men walk away from those things, those things are no longer idols. But man can turn away from God and God is still God. God doesn't need us in order to maintain his existence. Idols need worshipers in order to remain an idol. And Paul's making this distinction. He says, these things are dependent upon you. My God's not dependent upon me at all. He doesn't need anything from me. And so he says, he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. You see, without men, idols are non-existence. They, they cease to exist. They cease to hold their value. That's why idols need Followers and idols need worshipers in order to be an idol. God was God long before he ever breathed life into man. Long before he ever called us to worship him, he was God. And if every man on the face of this earth ceased to worship God right now, God would still be God. 
So Paul's making that huge distinction between what, what, what the real God looks like and, and, and what their God. God did not need, nor does he need, us to be God. He is not in need. We are in need for our life and for our breath and for everything, Paul says here. In verse 26, he says this. He says that, 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 that my God, this unknown God, he made all men from one man. And he placed them into nations. He set boundaries for those nations. And he determined the allotted time for those nations. He decides when a nation is going to rise up. And he's going to decide when a nation is going to fall. God decided when the United States of America would be birthed. And God has already decided when the United States of America will come down. God's the one that decides those things. God raises up leaders and God takes down leaders. God turns leaders' hearts, the Bible says, a way that, that you can turn water. That's just who God is. And so he's, he's created all. And, and he has ultimate authority and sovereignty over all those things. He sets up the nations and he takes them down. And you say, well, why would he do that? Why does God do that? And this is so important right here. Look, look at verse 27. Why is it that God is sovereign over all these things? Why is it that God doesn't need man? Why is it that God has put us where we are and, and in this specific, specific time and, and place? Why does God do all of that? And verse 27 tells us, he does that so that they should seek God. God's put us here. This time, this place, that we might seek God. In the hope that they might feel their way toward him. Again, some would say that man can't do that until he's saved. That man can't seek after God until he's saved. Paul's saying something different here. He's saying God has put you where you are right now, at this place and this time, so that you would seek God in the hope that you might feel your way toward him. Now look, there's still spiritual blindness, right? But before God lifts the veil, before the Holy Spirit enables us to see who God really is, we are, we are blind. But there's something in us that's, that's trying to crawl and to find our way toward God. And that's what these guys in Athens are doing. It is they're setting up idols. They're, they're spiritually blind, but they're trying to find and to feel what will bring them satisfaction, what will bring them happiness, what will, will fill the, the, the void in their heart. They're, he says that the reason that God's created us the way that he has is in the hope that we might feel our way toward him. But not just to stop short, but to feel our way toward him and find him. Now, theologically speaking, none of us can find God on our own. Okay? God has to do a work. He has to, to draw us. He has to bring us to that place. But, but God, in, in, even in, in his placing us where we are, at this particular time, in this particular place, is setting the stage and making it possible for us to feel our way toward God. You ever been around somebody that's just blind and can't see where they're going, and, 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 and it helps if we have somebody to take them by the hand and to walk them where they're going? They walk with a lot more confidence when they have that. They can walk with their little stick and, and find their way, but, but it's easier. Somebody will take them by the hand and, and get them there. Even in our spiritual blindness, there's something in us that that, that longs for something to bring us fulfillment. And God is the one that can do that. And so he says he, he puts us in these places that we might feel our way toward him and, and find him. And the reality is he's not that far. Because our God has come near. Emmanuel, what does that mean? God with us. 
He has come to us. And so he's, he's, he's put us here that we would seek him and hope that we might feel our way toward him, that we might find him as he's made known through the gospel. We find him. In verse 27, he's actually not far from us. Verse 28, Paul quotes two of their authors. He says, in him we live and we move and we have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for, for we are indeed his offspring. And then he builds on those two quotes. He says, being then God's offspring, verse 29, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. In other words, this real God, this unknown God to you is not like those idols made out of gold or silver or stone. That's not what he's like. He's not an image that's formed by the art and the imagination of man. In fact, he has formed man. Man didn't form him. And then Paul shows them the urgency of the moment, the need for them to choose God over their idols. In verse 30, he says, The time of ignorance, God's overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He says, God's previously overlooked your ignorance. You, you didn't know. You, you've done the best that you could with what you had. But now the ignorance with the, the, the presentation of the truth, the ignorance is now dispelled. You now know and have been told the truth. And so while God has overlooked the ignorance, now it's time for you to repent, to have a change of heart, to, to, to change your God, to change your heart, to change the direction of your life. Now's the time for us to repent. The unknown God has now been made known. And now it's time for repentance. It's time to change your mind, your heart, your, your, your allegiance, to, to recognize your idols and to reject them and to throw them down. It's time to turn from your idols, to turn to Jesus, to turn from those false things that promise you but cannot deliver to the God who has delivered everything that you need in Christ. Why is repentance needed? Verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. He's fixed the day. Just like God fixed it when the nations would rise and when the nations would fall, he's also fixed a day in the future, one day soon, when Jesus will come and he will judge the nations. And he says here that he's, he's fixed the times when he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he has given the assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world. And, and, and he has done that through Jesus. So here's what he's saying. The time for ignorance is, is done. The time for repentance is now because the time for judgment is coming soon. How do we know that what Paul's saying is true? Paul says God proved it. He gave this assurance, verse 31, by raising Jesus from the dead. Something, by the way, your idols can't do. God did. He raised his son from the dead. And that's the proof that Jesus will judge the world. And by raising Jesus from the dead, God made salvation possible for all who would repent. He, he did this for, for us so that we could never, what we could never do for ourselves. But, but repentance is required in this. And so we've got to change our mind about our idols and about salvation and what's required. We've got to turn from those things and turn to the living God, to our risen Savior. So Paul begins to show with them that their idols were their attempt to find a God who could satisfy, to find a God who could provide what their hearts were longing for. But their idols always fell short. 
There was always one more thing they had to do for the idol. One more thing they had to sacrifice for the idol. One more thing that was required of them by the idol. And it was this carrot on a stick that was always put out front of them. And if you'll just do one more thing, one more thing, one more thing, one more thing, then. And those idols could never, ever fulfill. But what their idols couldn't do, Jesus did by being resurrected from the dead. What they promised but couldn't deliver, Jesus delivered for them. So they needed to repent. So their idols had left them wanting more. Uh, and that's why they had so many different idols. Because this idol just takes care of one thing, and this one just takes care of one thing, and this one just takes care of one thing. And you need them all to be able to be fully happy. And Paul says, no, you get all of that in Jesus. You get all of that. So he says, God created you and he wired you to need him, to seek him, to feel your way toward him and to find him. And now that they knew the unknown God, the time to repent and to embrace him, embrace him had come. You might imagine the response is going to be mixed. Not everybody's going to fall on their knees and say, let's worship Jesus. It says that some mocked Paul. But others wanted to hear more. Some even went as far as to join Paul and to believe and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And, and, and these guys began to, to respond. But the greatest challenge, I think, when we start talking about addressing idols in our lives and, and in our world. And, and this is a tough one. It's tough for me and I, I think it would be tough for, for most of us. Is that when we begin to address the issue of idols in our lives, we've, we've got to to understand and be able to show how the gospel meets the needs that we're looking to our idols to meet. I don't have an idol in my life because I just want to look foolish. I have an idol in my life because I think that that idol can better meet my need than Jesus can. If I didn't believe the idol could do it better than Jesus, then I would take Jesus over the idol. So the hard part for us when we're confronting idols in, in our world and confronting idols in our lives is to understand how that Jesus meets that need better than an idol can meet that need. Sometimes we look to people and we make them our idol because we think that they can give us our worth. They can give us our identity. They can put us in a position to earn more money or they can put us in a place that, that we will have more power or more, more wealth or more popularity or more whatever and we, we look to these things, these people as our idols to do everything and to sacrifice everything to make them happy. We, we talk about peer pressure and we talk about that and we think sometimes that's just what, what, what teenagers face. Reality is it's not. We go through our whole life Wondering what others are going to think about us. We have commercials that bombard us telling us that we're really nobody until we buy their product and then we're going to have it all. And so what happens is we turn to these idols because we're convinced. Maybe, maybe we wouldn't come out and say it, but, but something convinces us that that idol can do something for me that Jesus can't do for me. And so the real challenge becomes trying to understand how the gospel can meet the deepest need of my life. And, and, and honestly, I can't share that with my world until I figure that out for myself. I can't go out and tell the world, let me tell you how Jesus will, will, will fill every need of your life if I'm still looking to idols in my own life to meet those needs. And so we tend to look for things that will give us 
identity. And so it may be a spouse. Or some parents, it's, it's not their spouse, but it's their kid's success that gives them their identity. If my kid can grow up and become A, B, C, or D, then I will have been judged as a great parent and, and, and done a great job. Oh, and by the way, if my kid doesn't do A, B, C, or D, but it chooses X, Y, or Z, then I'm going to be a terrible parent. And people are going to look down on me. And people are going to think that I just missed it and I just blew it and I just must have been horrible. And we're looking for our identity and what our kids do and how successful they are. That's an idol because my identity can only be found and established in Christ. But anytime I look to those things or, you know, the car that I drive or the clothes that I wear or the crowds that I hang out with or the type of foods that I enjoy... Why, why do we post everything we do on Facebook? Why don't we do that? Look at this great meal I'm eating. It's that so-and-so restaurant. Look at the menu price. Look. Why do we do that? Why do we feel this incessant need to show everybody our best? Because we've been convinced that we need their approval. When the reality is, all I need... God's approval. And I've already got that. We, we look to stuff for our identity instead of Christ for our identity. We look to jobs for our provision. I, I need this job making this much money in this position with this title because that's what I need. And that's what makes me who I am. That's what lets me be the provider of my family. But what do you do when that job disappears? What do you do when the person over you says, okay, to keep this, you're going to have to compromise here, 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 and here. To, 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 to keep what makes you who you are, you've got to lie, cheat, steal, or fudge. Whereas if I find that my provider is not that employer, but my provider is the God that I serve, who would never ask me to do those things. Then when my employer comes and says, I need you to do this, 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 or this, that's not right, but we need you to do that to keep your job, you go, you know what, you're not my provider. God's my provider. And if that's what's required for me to stay here, then it's obvious that I don't need to stay here and that God will provide for me. But when I make that employer my idol, then I've got to satisfy that idol. And we've got to keep it there. What about when I look to the world to give me satisfaction or joy? Instead of finding my satisfaction and my joy in Christ. The stuff the world offers me, guys, it, it rusts and it rots. And it wears out and it breaks. And while it may satisfy for a few minutes, it doesn't satisfy long term. And then I have to have more. And then I have to have more. And then I have to have more. Because I'm looking to the world to bring satisfaction instead of finding contentment in Christ. And say, you know what, Lord, if I've got you, that's, that's all I need. Sometimes our search to belong 
leads us to put idols in our lives when we realize that our already belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It, 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 it drives us, these, these, these desires for purpose or for meaning or for our future or reason to get out of bed. If, if we look to the world to give us those answers and to supply those things that we have to have, then the minute those things begin to tarnish or rust or rot or be removed, then my world comes crumbling down. Our, our greatest challenge is to realize how that Christ meets those needs, which is something that Paul, I believe while he's back in those desert years, Paul came to understand that all that mattered was Christ. And so he went into this town of Athens where the idols were everywhere. And he goes, yeah, they're looking to idols to satisfy their heart. When only God can do that. So instead of condemning them, he has compassion. And he shares with them how that God can meet those needs. How that God can satisfy them in a way that nobody else could satisfy them. And we need to know how to do that. We've got to, first of all, understand what drives us toward idols. And then we've got to understand and embrace and, 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 and honestly believe that Jesus is better than any idols. We've got to understand why we do what we do. Why is it? Why is it that pornography is so strong in a man's life? Why is it that, that, that I look outside of marriage to try to do? Why do I do what I do? Why is it that I make my career everything? Why is it that I care what other people think about me? We need to get to the root of those issues. And then we realize how that Jesus is so much better than all that. So, as we wrap it up this morning, let me, let me ask you a couple questions and we'll just close with these. When God puts you in a place that's saturated with sin, do you see that place as this place of offense where you walk around all day long talking about how offended you are by the things that other people do? Or do you see it as an opportunity to speak the gospel and to offer an alternative, to offer true hope, true meaning, to give them what their heart is really longing can, can you look past the outward and, and the sinful and see a heart that's empty and go, yeah, the reason that that person's doing what they're doing is that something's missing on the inside and that something is Jesus. And love them and lead them to find that, that the gospel is the answer. Can you look past the sin and see the need can you look down deep and see the emptiness that's there that they're trying to cover up with all these other things around them? Do you know how Jesus can fill those, those needs? So do you see them through the eyes of condemnation? Or do you see them through eyes of, of compassion? Because our attitude as we approach them goes a long way in them being able to receive and to understand and to hear the great news of the gospel. And finally, before we can confront our world, we've got to confront the idols in our lives. Are you aware of any idols that are in your life? 
when we ask that question, our first response is, I don't, I don't think I have any idols. But I would encourage you to take some time and, and really get along with the Lord and say, Lord, are, are there things in my life that I've placed at too high of a priority? Things in my life, Lord, that I've just set on this pedestal, and if that thing were to go away, I, I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know what I do anymore. Discover why that thing's an idol. What, what are you looking to it to give you that Jesus has already given to you? What are you looking for it to do in your life? Because there's something you're wanting it to do or, or it wouldn't be in your life. What am I asking it to do that God's already agreed to do? And I would encourage you as God reveals these idols in your life that you would simply say, God, you know what? You're more important than any idol. You meet that need in my life better than anyone else can. So God, I'm going to reject my idol. And I'm going to look to you. And would you ask him to help you to do that? Let's pray together.